I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, we'll look at a moment in verses 4 through 15. Verses we read last week, but verses of which when we were considering them last week, we were looking at and considering their implications for what it means to be a human being. This week we're going to look at a little different aspect of these verses. They teach more than one lesson, and so it took more than one week to cover them. And as you're going to see, I'm actually squeezing quite a bit in here. Probably deserved three or four more weeks after this. But Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 15. Here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. And that means, among other things, that if you want to know how and why the world was created and how and what we are supposed to do in it and with it today... We have to know God's Word. We have to know this book. Here now, as I read Genesis 2, 4 through 15, as I've been doing the last several weeks, I will offer some commentary on the text as I read through. Then we will consider its message in the sermon. Genesis 2, starting in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens... I'm sorry, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. You may recall that up until now, Moses had used exclusively the generic word Elohim, meaning God. A word that can often be translated with a lowercase g, a word that is in the Bible used for uh, Baal and Moloch and other gods. Moses Though he had described a god unlike any other god, he had not distinguished that god by name. Now he does. That god who needed no consort, no co-gods, for whom a goddess was unnecessary, who created without conflict, without turmoil, who hovered over the deep, who demonstrated his dominion over the darkness by naming it night, and created the great sea creatures. The God who did all this without explanation, acting on his own sovereignty, he now says to the people of Israel, that is your God, Yahweh. Virtually every English Bible renders God's proper personal name, Yahweh, in all caps, Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's God's personal name. Thus, that all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise God of chapter 1 is now called the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. The personal name of Israel's covenant-making God who brought them out of Egypt, who met them at Mount Sinai, is adjoined to the title of creative power, Elohim. So that we might also feel the impact of that on us. For the remainder of the text, I am going to use not the English gloss Lord, but I'm going to use God's name, the name by which he is to be remembered throughout all generations as we read. Verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for Yahweh, God, had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Note how the lack of productivity upon the earth is connected to the lack of people upon the earth. 
and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Note the wording. God did not plant the garden of Eden, as it's often referred to. Rather, he planted a garden in Eden. Eden was a place upon the earth known to Moses' audience, and probably in modern-day southern Iraq. In that place, in that region on the earth's surface, God carved out an orchard, a garden, and he put man there. At least a half dozen later Old Testament passages reference Eden not as the original paradise, but as a geopolitical region. I just point that out so that we will think more accurately about what we are reading. Now, having said that, I will use Eden in the narrow sense of referring to the garden, just like everybody else does. But it really is a large region in which a garden was carved out. Verse 9. And out of the ground Yahweh, God, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. Great myrtles, and good for food, peaches. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Great deal more on that next week. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Again, Note that Eden and the garden are distinct from each other here. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is, one, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx. Bedellium is a, a fragrant, it's like myrrh. It's, a, it's an aromatic resin. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. A couple of notes here. First, the Hebrew word behind the English word flow doesn't necessarily imply uh, any direction. Flow in English kind of means the water is moving in a certain direction. But in Hebrew, the word simply means kind of the path of the water. Maybe the riverbed would be a way to think about it. I don't think it's going to be a problem for us, because here on the eastern shore, the rivers flow the opposite way half the time anyway. So, you know, we're not hung up on this idea of flow here on the eastern shore. Uh, my point of saying this is that most scholars agree that it is probable that the view of the rivers being taken here is upstream. This should be, uh, 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 in other words, the, the, the rivers that are being mentioned did not divide after they left the garden, but rather they are tributaries to the river that flowed into the garden. Uh, in that case, if this is correct, the garden is likely to have been a place that is uh, just north of the, uh, the Persian Gulf today. Um, and while that is a desert region today, it has not always been so. Second, there is a view put forward by many young earth creationists that says the flood radically altered the earth's surface. If that's true, how can Moses have any hope of telling his audience about the garden using post-flood geography? There is a problem with that theory about the flood. 
Finally, and most importantly for our purposes today, we almost always read this text as a map by which we might locate the garden. It is, however, also a guide by which we might locate natural resources. It tells us how to find gold and bdellium and onyx stone. It tells us where they are. Think about it. If you paddle upstream on the, uh, the river Pishon, voila, natural resources are available to you. Verse 15, the last that we are reading this morning. Yahweh, God, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. There is nothing technically wrong with the translation I just read, but it is a bit bland. In your bulletins, after the announcements, you will find the NASB translation. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Cultivate and keep, they alliterate nicely. That's always a sermonic plus. And cultivating the garden feels, I don't know, it feels more like a, a hobby, like a pre-fall, pre-sin, a, a happy, blessed, pleasant activity. Working the garden feels a bit like post-fall toil and labor and sweat of your brow type stuff. And I think, uh, so we're going to go with the cultivate. So God put man in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Yahweh, God, show us the goodness of your creation, both in human beings and in the earth. And teach us today how to rightly think about our relationship to the earth and its relationship to you. We know that the only hope we have of getting our thinking straight is to get our thinking from you. So we ask you this morning to renew our minds so that they are conformed to your way and not the ways of this world. Christ's name we pray. Amen. I would take, this is a quote, I would take even money that England will not exist in the year 2000. That was said in the early 1970s. I would take even money that England would not exist in the year 2000. Hmm. Okay. The next quote was made in the year 1970. In 10 years, so by 1980, all important animal life in the sea will be extinct. Large areas of coastline will have to be evacuated because of the stench of dead fish. Yikes. One last prediction, made in 1968, I think. By 1985, enough millions will have died to reduce the Earth's population to some acceptable level, like 1.5 billion people. Population of the Earth, for the record, in 1985, 4.8 billion, or about three times that prediction. Its population today, 7.8 billion. Scientists, like Old Testament prophets, are supposed to be evaluated on the basis of their predictions. Good scientist espousing plausible theories should be able to make relatively good predictions. Obviously, the three uh, uh, theories, uh, the three predictions just cited, would be reason to wonder about the scientists who made them. What if I told you all three predictions were made by the same scientist? 
In fact, that scientist made dozens more falsified predictions. One scientist making dozens and dozens of outrageous predictions, all of which have since been shown to be false. Obviously, that is a scientist not worthy of the title scientist, and he must be relegated to the dark corners of the internet where he lives out his life ignored and forgotten. Not quite. In fact, those predictions were all made by Paul Ehrlich. Dr. Ehrlich is Professor Emeritus and the current president of the Center for Conservation Biology at Stanford University. Despite this abysmal track record in predictions, he is a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He is a fellow of the United States National Academy of Sciences, of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and a fellow of the American Philosophical Society. His books, the very books which contained those falsified theories, have sold millions of copies and continue today to sell thousands and thousands of copies every year. How can a scientist whose every prediction went so horribly astray be so honored and revered? Professor Ehrlich's popularity, his prominence, has been driven largely by his ideology, not his science. Simply put, he believes there are too many people. He was an early and a loud voice in the human population control movement. In fact, one of his cohorts, Miss Ingrid Newkirk, we met her last week in a quote from Chief President of PETA. She went so far as to say to the New Yorker magazine one time, the earth would be better off without any people at all. This anti-people bias is nothing less than an attack upon the image of God. It must be rejected. Sadly, however, foolishness is not found only on the political left. Statements at odds with the Bible are not relegated solely to liberals. The political right often does a better job of couching their foolishness in religious-sounding language, but it is often just as unbiblical. For example, in 2012, Senator James Inhofe of Oklahoma was speaking to the Voice of Christian Youth America Conference. In defense of his denial of climate change, he said the following. That sounds good, but we're going to have to analyze it. My point is, God's still up there. The arrogance of people to think that we human beings would be able to change what he is doing in the climate is, to me, outrageous. As we are going to see, Genesis 2 says God put man in the environment to change it. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8 that the environment is groaning under the curse brought about by human activity. And most importantly, if you are becoming a new creation, looking forward to life in the new Jerusalem as part of a new heavens and a new earth, all of that is being brought about by human activity. For our hope is in Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Only a man could fulfill man's obligation as God's covenant partner. If 
we people do not affect the earth, if humans cannot have an impact on creation, then the work of Jesus is going nowhere. A statement like that must also be rejected. One side of an argument makes an outrageous claim. There are too many people. The world would be better off with no people. And we rightfully pull away from that. But too often, when we are running away from something, we're looking at the thing we're running away from rather than looking where we're running to. And we end up in another mess. It's a recipe for out of the frying pan and into the fire. One side of an argument, uh, sorry, extreme positions and extreme arguments are politically effective. They get big cheers at rallies. They fire up the emotions. They tend to fit nicely on bumper stickers. But none of that makes them right. And we often like extreme positions because they are easier positions. Anyone standing in the middle of a debate gets caught in the crossfire. It's easier to retreat to one of the extremes and be attacked only from one side, rather than be in the middle and attacked from both sides. At least in one extreme, you're going to have some friends. In the middle, you're going to feel awfully lonely. But as Christians, the goal of our thinking, of our studying, ought not to be party alignment or political protection. Remember, Romans 12, 2, Paul says that when our minds are renewed and conform to God and not this world, then we will know the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Isn't that what we want? We're to bring every thought captive to Christ. But the political spectrum at both ends are the thoughts of this world. We must seek a godly, Bible-based understanding of every complex issue in our world. Gender identity? Go to the Word. Sexual orientation? See God's book. Abortion? What does God say about it? Even personal things. You got a rocky marriage? How does the Bible counsel you to move forward in it? And environmentalism? Are there biblical principles that we can follow to navigate that issue? This passage is in Genesis 2 lays the groundwork for thinking biblically about the tough matter of the environment. We're going to consider four guiding principles, two guiding practices, and then we're going to try to pull these together into some concluding thoughts. Four guiding principles, two guiding practices, and some concluding considerations. This is all laid out and outlined for you on page 7 of the bulletin if you wish to use that. Guiding principle number one. People are good. People are good. Now, I don't mean morally, but they're personhood. This is really a little more than a recapitulation of last week's sermon, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time restating the case. But Genesis 1.27 says that God made man in his image. And Psalm 8.5 says he made man just a little lower than the heavenly beings. People are to be valued. They are to be respected. They are to be held in high esteem. Though a person 
may be morally corrupt and evil, his inherent personhood is a good thing. To be human is a good thing. People are good creation of God. We must reject anti-people policies and practices. Why? Because opposition to humanity is ultimately the defacing of God's image upon the earth. It's graffiti. It's an act of rebellion. It's spray painting all over God's likeness on the earth. We must reject any approach to the environment which takes as its presupposition the inherent undesirability of humanity. People are a good creation of God. Guiding principle number two, not only are people a good creation, but they are good for the earth, for the environment. People are good for the environment. Psalm 8, God didn't just make man a little lower than the heavenly beings and then set him off to the side to do nothing. God made him to rule over the beasts of the fields and birds of the air and fish of the sea. Mankind was given dominion over God's creation. We saw that last week in Genesis 1, 26 and 28. God gives dominion to mankind. But this week, I want to emphasize something we only hinted at last time. Note the wording of verse 5. I noted it as we read through. Chapter 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain the land, and there was no man to work the ground. The clear implication is that the lack of people on the earth is connected to the land's lack of productivity. People are presented here in chapter 2 as a necessary thing for the earth itself, if it is to be all that it was supposed to be. The anti-human bias of the far left argues that man needs to get out of the way for nature to be at its best. But the Bible implies that man is necessary for the earth to be at its best. People are good for the earth. Here's another reality we must keep in, we must keep in mind about the earth. Nature isn't natural. Let me say that again. Nature isn't natural. Now I wish I had thought up that line by myself, but I borrow it from Pastor Ernie Bauman. Nature is not natural. Think about it. We tend to use the word natural to mean that something has been it, it was, was not made by or significantly changed by people. Things are natural if we human beings didn't mess with them. But the Bible makes clear we've messed with nature. Our sin has affected it. It has been changed. It's not what it was created once upon a time. It has been altered by human beings. It's not unaffected by humans. If we're going to say natural means not tampered with by human beings, then nature isn't natural. Romans 8, chapter, uh, yeah, Romans 8, uh, verses 20 and 22, Paul speaks of creation being subjected to the curse because of man's sin, and creation groaning as it awaits redemption. 
Isaiah 65 and 66 speak of how God will one day not only redeem and restore mankind, but also the earth itself. There will one day be a new heaven and a new earth. Peter speaks of all of this burning up and being replaced and restored. All creation will be redeemed because all creation has been affected by man. Nature is not natural. To take the view that mankind should just leave nature alone is to falsely assume that it's perfectly good without us. That wasn't the case for Adam before the fall. How much less could that be the case now? Nature is not natural. Guiding principle number one, people are good, valuable, desirable. They should be honored as God's image bearers. Guiding principle number two, people are good for the earth. They are good for the environment. Guiding principle number three, the earth is for people. The earth is for people. Countless atheists, atheists have marveled at the fact that the universe seems precisely tuned to let humans exist. It has been shown that seemingly arbitrary values like Planck's constant. Planck's constant is the ratio of a photon's energy to its frequency. That would seem to have nothing to do with human life. And yet if it varies even a little bit, human life ceases to exist on the earth. Atheists have marveled at that and gone, it's, it's almost like the whole cosmos was made just so we could exist. Well, duh! That's what the Bible says. Creation was made, and then the pinnacle of creation was mankind. We were put here. This was all created to build up to be a place where we could live. I don't know that God has not created any other sentient life out there. I don't know. But I do know that he did create the universe to allow our existence. But you know what? There's a second part to this. It's not that the Earth exists in such a way to accommodate our mere existence. It's that the Earth exists in such a way to foster our flourishing. This world was not created so that we could just be but so that we could be fruitful and increase in number, so that we could make amazing things, so that we could enjoy astounding blessings. Let me show you how the Bible paints that picture. First, it's important that we recognize the earth was, by design, hear me say this, the earth was, by design, not what God ultimately wanted. That's going to freak some of you out. I appreciate the restraint that you haven't yet thrown a hymnal at me. But the earth was not created the way God wanted it. How do I make that case? Well, first of all, let me point this out. God's command to Adam was not leave it all alone. I've got it just so. I've got it just the way I want it. Don't mess up anything. You know how it is. You've got that place in the house where you've got the special thing. If you do let the kids or the grandkids in there, you give them the speech. Well, I'm not touching anything. But God didn't give that speech to Adam. In fact, quite the opposite. 
he tells Adam, make babies. Fill the earth. Move beyond the boundaries of this garden. Rule over all of it. Have dominion over all of it. Now, if that's the way God wants it to be ultimately, he didn't make it that way to begin with. He left some work for us to do. The God who works created those things in his image, us, to also work. Secondly, did you notice Moses' comments about the rivers which fed the garden? How he uses the rivers to point out the location of the riches of the raw materials? Hey, upriver, that way, there is gold and onyx and bdellium. And did you hear in our Old Testament reading? For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without uh, scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. These are comments about go flourish in the land, not just merely exist in it, Go flourish in it. Go uh, 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 enjoy abundance and blessing in the land. Mining copper, making plastic from petroleum, turning sand into glass so that you can have a smartphone. That's thriving. That's flourishing in the land. And God points out those resources to his people. So he wanted Adam to flourish because he doesn't tell Adam just stay put and don't touch anything. He says, go make it better. Go, go occupy all of it. He wanted Adam, he wanted the people to flourish. He says, look at the resources that are there for your flourishing. Thirdly, in the restoration of all things, what we read in our New Testament reading, you ever noticed that God does not restore us to eat. The garden might be paradise lost, but it is a city which is paradise regained. We are not returned to the Garden of Eden, for that is never what we were supposed to exist in for all eternity. The garden was to eventually become a, a large uh, plantation, which would then eventually become a village, which would then eventually become a small town, which would eventually become a gleaming, magnificent city. And that's the place of our restoration. If God made the world exactly the way he wanted it to be, then why isn't he restoring it back to its created It's not that the world was created merely so man could exist in it. The world was created so that man could thrive in it, do things in it, have fun in it, use its resources, build things, be creative, flourish. Guiding principle number one, people are good for they are made in God's image. Guiding principle number two, people are good for the earth. Without us, it wasn't producing what it should have produced. Guiding principle number three, the earth was made not only for man's existence, but for man's flourishing. Guiding principle number four, 
The earth is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's. If we were to stop our discussion without going to this fourth principle, we might wrongly conclude that the whole environmental movement is to be rejected wholesale. People are good. People are good for the earth. The earth was made for man's existence and the flourishing. Hey, break out the bulldozers. We're going to strip mine the entire length and breadth of West Virginia. That might be the conclusion. And sadly, that has been the conclusion of some Christians throughout the ages. Far too often, that is the mindset of many Christians. But did you know that in the earliest days of America's conservation movement, I'm talking about the late 1800s and early 20th century, it was overwhelmingly Christians who were the champions of the effort to protect the earth. By the way, the vast majority of them were Presbyterians. Even as late as 1970, it was no less a conservative Presbyterian Christian thinker than Francis Schaeffer himself. A, a man who was part of what form eventually became our denomination. A man whose namesake institute is at our denomination's seminary. He writes in 1970 a book entitled Pollution and the Death of Man. He writes in part so that we don't fall into the pantheism that is so common in the environmental movement, but he also writes to stir Christians to care about the environment, to care about how it is treated. Why? Because of verses like Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and those who dwell in it. Yes, the earth was made for us, but it is not ours. Imagine you are headed to Ocean City, and a wealthy friend says, Hey, you're headed to OC? Here are the keys to my beachfront home. And you get there, and it is, wow. It is the beachfront home of all time. Stunning views from every room, pristine beaches out front, gorgeous in every way, extravagant house. How do you treat it while you're enjoying it? Do you alter it just because you want it to? Do you abuse it just because they said you could be there for a while? It's not yours. And the grateful thing to do, the right thing to do, is to return it in at least as good a shape as you found it. We do not own the earth. It belongs to our God. Yes! We rule over it. Yes, we have dominion over it. But we have that rule and that dominion merely as temporary caretakers, property managers, beachfront home borrowers. People are good. They're the image bearers of God, and they should be valued. People are good for the earth. God's design was that the earth would be better place for us being in it. The earth was made for man's existence and for man's flourishing, but the earth is the Lord's. Those are our four guiding principles. Let's look now quickly at the two guiding practices. 
And these could have been lumped together, I suppose, but they really are, rather than being philosophical ideas, they really are directions about how to act. And so I put them not under principles, but under practices. You could debate on whether or not I divided that up the best possible way. Guiding practice number one. Man is to cultivate the earth. People are to cultivate the earth. What does it mean to cultivate something? Well, our first thought upon hearing the word cultivate is probably agriculture, plowing, planting, weeding, reaping. But we cultivate friendships. We cultivate musical talent. We cultivate an artistic eye. To cultivate means to take the, the nugget, the raw, unrefined essence that's there, and to foster its development. God put man in the orchard of Eden, which he had already made, and told man to cultivate it, to work it, make it better, foster its growth, aid its progress. One of the realities of this world, which is often forgotten in any environmental debate, is that wealth is not a fixed quantity. The well-being of humans is not based upon taking what is what is uh, what one person has, taking it from them, and giving it to everyone else, as if wealth were finite. Now, wealth may be finite, but we have come nowhere close to reaching its upper limit upon this earth. Wealth for all people can be, and has been in the past, grown, cultivated, worked. Think about the growth of wealth in the world. Did King Solomon, for all of his wealth, did King Solomon have indoor plumbing? Clean, safe, running, hot and cold water, a flushable toilet. Did he have screens on the windows to keep out the bugs? Did he have electric lights to see at night? Could he buy a window air conditioner unit at Lowe's for 100 bucks so he could sleep well in the evening? Could he order a pizza from his smartphone? And that is to say nothing of the safety and quality of the roads he traveled or of his health care. Despite his historic wealth, I suspect very few Americans would choose Solomon's quality of life over what they have right now. Yesterday's luxuries quickly become tomorrow's necessities because wealth can be multiplied and grown. It can be cultivated. How does this happen? There are only three activities that I'm aware of that actually build wealth. Ironically, all three of them are hated by the extreme left anti-people bias. What are those activities? Mining, manufacturing, and agriculture. Each of them takes some raw material and makes it more valuable than it was before. Takes an ore out of the ground and makes from it steel. Takes a seed and makes from it ears and ears of corn. Takes from a, a pile of trees and turns it into a house. Wealth can be grown when we human beings cultivate the earth. And any, any position, any political effort 
that says we must not make the living conditions of other people better. We gotta stop all the mining, all the manufacturing, all the agriculture to save the planet and let those people just be poor. That has to be rejected. Materials were given. God tells Adam to cultivate the garden. Guiding practice number two comes from that same verse. Man is to keep the earth. Man is to cultivate the earth, and man is to keep the earth. What does it mean to keep something? Well, in short, it means to maintain the status quo. It means to leave things as they are. Your child's or grandchild's soccer team starts with an empty net at its back, and it's the job of the goal keeper to be sure it stays that way. A family keepsake is something that you protect from change. You keep it in such a way that water doesn't damage it, and ultraviolet light doesn't deteriorate it, and it doesn't change. To keep something is to protect it from change. Now some of you are sitting there going, wait a second, Scott. You're telling us in one breath that we're to cultivate the earth, change it, make it better, build wealth, help people out, help people live better. And you should run around telling us that we're supposed to keep the earth and not change anything. Well, first of all, I'm going to say, I'm not telling you this. The words cultivate and keep, I took them right off the page of scripture. Those aren't my words. Those are God's words. But I also point out that they do create a framework in which we have to think about these things. So how do we do this? How do we pull this together? And I've gone, there's a lot here. We could spend uh, hours and hours and hours getting into more detail, a more refined understanding of these things, and trying to wrestle with them and flesh them out. We've only considered them briefly. But how do we try to pull this together? What are our concluding considerations? As we wrestle with our relationship to the environment and our relationship uh, uh, to the environmental movement, Genesis 2 and the supporting text we've referenced, referenced give us some principles and practices along which we might think and act biblically. What we recognize is that it's a balancing act. One principle or practice pushes us in one way while the other stops us from going too far. It then pushes us the other way and a principle stops us from going too far. We are back to that middle position. Though it be attacked from both sides, if it's the biblical position, it's the one we must strive to maintain. So how do we put this into practice? How do these things actually work? Some of these things are obvious, some of them we've already mentioned. We must reject any effort which puts the environment over people. Just flat out reject it. Yes, we were created to cultivate the environment, but we are not its servants. And yes, we are caretakers of the environment, but we are not created for it. We must reject that view. There is a clear biblical hierarchy. God, man, earth. And anything that flips those upside down has to be rejected. The earth and the garden formed in it were for people, for their existence, for their flourishing. 
so that those two, Adam and Eve, could quickly become billions. And so those billions could elevate their existence from garden to village to town to gleaming glorious city. We must reject an anti-people bias. That principle of rejecting the anti-people bias has to be counterbalanced by being reminded that the earth, the, the earth is the Lord's and not ours. We are at that beach house. We are the beach house borrowers of the Lord. We are beneficiaries of his wealth and his largest. We are not the owners and cannot treat the planet like it's ours. It is for us. It is not ours. People over the environment, but the environment and people both under God. Balancing principles guard against nature worship, but they also guard against blind selfishness and consumerism. And the practices to which we are called are cultivating and keeping. They foster the earth's increased productivity for our good and for God's glory, while also protecting it and preserving it for our good and for God's glory. So what might that look like? Well, cultivation might mean that we actually do mine resources. It really might be okay to dig up ores and minerals. But keeping the earth might mean that while we're mining those resources, we pay the extra cost of protecting the local water supply from the mining chemicals. And we pay the additional costs of restoring the land afterwards, of putting back topsoil and replanting trees, cultivating so we can mine it, keeping so we can't destroy it. We need to find a way to do both. Cultivating might mean that it's okay for Pennsylvania, uh, Pennsylvania farmers to use fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides, even human-made ones. But keeping the earth might mean that it's also okay to put pretty tight limits on their use to protect Chesapeake Bay. Cultivating might mean that it's okay to build a beautiful waterfront home. Keeping might mean that in doing so, you should work around the wetlands rather than draining them. But in another place, cultivating might actually mean draining the wetlands. For if those people are dying of disease, if it's a place where disease is rampant because of the wetlands and people are suffering, can we see the difference between our beach house ruining the wetlands and draining wetlands for the protection of the local people? Cultivating might mean that we drain those wetlands. Keeping might mean that those same principles don't necessarily apply to the wealthy places on earth. People are good. They are the image bearers of God upon the earth. People are good for the earth, cultivating it, making it what God wanted it to become. The earth was formed for us and for our flourishing. 
but the earth is not ours. We are blessed borrowers. We are to cultivate it, but we are also to keep it. God, this is not easy. We cannot absorb all of this in just one sitting. Let us ponder these things. Let us think about these things. Let us wrestle with their implications. Let us be uh, people who desire to do what you created us to do, who want to be both cultivators and keepers, workers of the earth and protectors of the earth. Let us not stray into either extreme that, that favors the environment over the people you created in your image, nor to the extreme which says, because we were creating your image, we can do whatever we want with the world. Let us reject both because your word rejects both. Give us wisdom to find the right attitude, the right way to do all that you've called us to do. Recognizing that this has been made harder by our sin, recognizing that this is more difficult in light of the fall, nevertheless, it is what you created us to do. And we long to do it by your sanctifying work in us through Jesus Christ in whom we pray. Amen.